Dr. Scott Stripling, who comes to uh, us from Houston, Texas. So, uh, you know, that's what, a hundred plus uh, degree turnaround from what he came through and what he just, yeah, experienced this week. So he's still here. So uh, that's, yeah, th that just deserves uh, an applause there of appreciation. But he's the director of excavations at Ancient Shiloh and the provost at the Bible Seminary in Houston, Texas. He also serves as an adjunct faculty at Houston Baptist University, author of several books. Uh, some of them are Building Blocks, uh, is author of also Somebody Call 911, and most recently, The Trial and the Truth, and numerous other academic and popular articles. So uh, he speaks all around the world uh, and different conferences and been involved in different documentaries on the Bible and archaeology. And he has been married to his wife, Janet, for 36 years, and they have blessed, they've been blessed with four children and two grandchildren. So really excited for what uh, the Lord's put on Scott's heart to share with this morning. Would you give him a very warm... Good morning, Northwestern. I had a friend contact me this morning, and he said, I'm here at Northwestern looking for you. Turns out he was at Northwestern Chicago. Uh, wrong campus. Hey, it's cold here, you guys, in case you hadn't noticed. And uh, as soon as it starts warming up, I'm leaving. But I hope to come back in the summertime and see how beautiful it really is. Uh, a couple of uh, commercials, let me get out of the way real quickly. If you are interested in our excavation at Ancient Shiloh that I'm gonna talk about this morning and make some faith connections from that, uh, the website is digshiloh.org, digshiloh.org. You can go there to get all of the information. If you're interested in grad school and maybe archaeology you think is part of that, you might check out our archaeology program at thebibleseminary.org, and that's in Houston, Texas. Well, now that we have the commercials out of the way, oh, and one more thing, I'm speaking tomorrow night at the symposium that kicks off the awesome archaeological exhibit that is opening here at Northwestern, and a lot of these artifacts were excavated under my supervision. In fact, you have some Northwestern folks, uh, Dr. Sievers and Katie and Victoria that have been a part of the excavation. Others maybe will be able to recruit you to come and, and be a part as well. But there's probably a few spaces still available tomorrow night since it was totally, uh, registration was closed, but with the change of schedule, they probably can squeeze you in if you're interested in coming. Well, if you get up at 3.45 in the morning and you get breakfast at 4.15 and you're boarded on the bus at 4.59, then you arrive at Shiloh at 5.35 and this is what you see. 20 miles north of Jerusalem, it's Israel's first capital. This is where you came to connect with God for over three centuries. When Jerusalem was still a pagan city, you came to Shiloh to restore your fractured relationship with God or with others. And this is the beautiful view that you see as you arrive at Shiloh were trowels in the ground by 6 a.m. Of course, part of the method of the madness is that we're trying to beat the heat. And uh, so we start a little bit early and it's worth it. This is paradise, heaven on earth. This is the stairway to heaven. This is part of our dig team from last year, and you can see we have a large team. In fact, we have the largest archeological excavation in the entire Middle East now. Hasn't always been that way. For years, we were small groups struggling, doing good work, doing good scholarship, doing our part, and then God has just blessed what we've done, and he's given us increase. We now have 11 universities that are part of our consortium students from all over and folks from all over who participate, people of you know, varying ages and backgrounds. But uh, you can see us there on the ancient walls of Shiloh. You can be in that photo this year. And this is some of the aerial footage that we do. It's really interesting. 
The first time we flew a drone five years ago on an archaeological site, everyone stopped working. They got their cameras to take pictures. Oh my goodness, it's a drone. And of course now we fly it you know, several times a day, take about a thousand photographs a day. We then compress all of those photos into a new software program that creates 3D models of, of what, we're, what we're doing. No longer do we just have a big photographer, we have a creative team and they put all of this media together. And if that's your skill and your interest also, we can involve you in that. But it's really super what we're able to do with some of our uh, technology. This year we're introducing in infrared and ultraviolet lighting into the field so that we can examine pottery and objects under light other than the naked eye so that we're making sure that we're not missing any glyptic material. Now, what we want to do is to determine our stratification at Shiloh. Like, what is the, the time period? We start at the top of the tail with Islamic material, and then at the bottom of the tail, we are in our stratum eight, which is the foundational phase, about 1750 BC. And so every stage in between there, there is a change in the material culture. And what we're most interested in is the shift that takes place in the pre-Israelite period into the Israelite period, does it match what you read in the biblical text? If you've been told that the Bible is contradicted by archeology, span boy, I've got news for you. Proverbs 17 says, the first one to present his case sounds right until another comes along <laughs> and another has come along. And so I hope that you'll uh, tune into what we're saying today and tomorrow night. And if possible, there's gonna be some copies of my book, The Trial and the Truth, pick that up as well. Because the good news is that the, the Bible is not contradicted by archaeology. In fact, it is confirmed by it. I'm going to show you two videos this morning. This first one is short and kind of fun. And uh, the second one is a little bit longer, a little bit more serious. But this uh, first video is called What a Dig Means. A little louder, please. Scott Stripling, the Director of Excavations for the Associates for Biblical Research here at Ancient Shiloh. This summer we have people from various churches, civic groups, from countries in Europe, United States, Canada, and the Far East and Near East participating with us. Eleven universities are included in that consortium under our umbrella known as the Associates for Biblical Research. So whether you're an individual or part of a group, we'd love to have you join us. A lightweight shirt, wide brim hat. Tower. 
so these videos are put together by our creative team and each one builds on top of the other and uh, you'll see what I mean as I go along. Now this is what the site looked like when we began. The Danish had worked at Shiloh for four seasons in the 1920s. The Israelis had sent a team there for four seasons in the 1980s. Now we're the third major expedition to work at Shiloh. Still over 80% of the site remains unexcavated. So what we're doing is we're connecting the work of the previous excavations and then opening up a much broader area so that then we can understand it. Think of the, the area of the auditorium here, sort of like our field H1 that we're excavating in at Shiloh. It sort of has this, this degree of slope on it as well. After our first season of excavation, you can see what things look like. As we are opening up our squares, we're beginning to reveal these storage rooms. Now, Shiloh is the only site in Israel that has storage rooms the entire perimeter of the fortification wall. This is because when you went to pay your tithe in biblical times, you couldn't go to uh, tabernacle.org and make a secure online donation. You couldn't write a check. You couldn't give cash. You couldn't use coins. None of those things existed at that time. So you would bring commodity, barley and wheat and figs and, and so forth. So there were places then to store the tithe, and it's exactly what you would expect to find. Here's your new word for the day. You ready? It's called verisimilitude. Verisimilitude. It means that what we find in the material culture matches what we read in the biblical text. It's what you would expect to find. Now, after two seasons of excavation, you can see we're getting deeper into these squares. I'll try to point out the northwestern square, too. Let me see right uh, here. So this is the, the square that's being excavated by the University of Northwestern. That's your new home for this summer. And let's just advance here. All right, this is some of our 3D modeling that I talked about. This enables us to get a different look at what we're excavating and then, of course, to be able to present this in a more meaningful manner. And uh, when we begin an excavation, we have to lay out a grid, an alphanumeric grid, so we know exactly where we are. We have to find true north and then survey the site and create a grid. And so you can see the blue X's here in the squares that we focused on last summer. I would direct your attention to area D. In area D, we have the remains of a massive bone deposit. This bone deposit, what we would call a fabisa, is probably half or a third the size of the auditorium from floor to ceiling filled with animal bones, only from the biblical sacrificial system. Now, why would that matter? Well, Shiloh matters because of the Mishkan, because of the, ta the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant was at Shiloh for over three centuries. Daily animal sacrifices for over three centuries resulted in this massive bone deposit, only bones from the biblical sacrificial system. Those bones are talking to me. You know, Jesus said in Luke 19, if the stones, that the stones would cry out, if we wouldn't praise him, well, the bones will too. In fact, the pottery's talking to me, and the bones, and the stones, and I'm hearing what it's saying. Mixed in with all of those bones is pottery from the period of the tabernacle at Shiloh too, from the earliest period, and it's all restorable. So the vessels have all been broken, but they can all be mended. It's like they brought drink offerings, what's called in the Bible a libation. So you bring your animal sacrifice, and what does animal sacrifice enable you to do? It enables you through sacrifice 
to reconnect with God and to reconnect with others to fix the sin problem. Leviticus 17.11 is very clear. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The writer of Hebrews, of course, picks that, that up and applies it to Jesus in giving the ultimate sacrifice. In the period of the tabernacle, you brought sacrifice. And it was through that means, something that hurt you, something that cost you, that you were able to then reestablish a broken relationship with God or a fractured relationship with others. That's what Hannah was like. That's what Elkanah was like. When they, when they came to Shiloh, they were just like us, with the same questions that we have. Like, who am I? What is my purpose? Why am I here? Where am I going? Those are the questions that we ask ourselves while we're in Shiloh. After giving the animal sacrifice, they would pour out a drink offering, something like wine that had value. And then the vessel itself had value, so they would break the vessel. And now I've given something that cost me, and it's a means of repentance. It's a means of recognition of my need for God and the fact that it cost God something to cover my sin as well. Now, one of the funnest things that we do, if you like a good jigsaw puzzle, you're going to love this because this is the world's greatest jigsaw puzzle. We have uh, 2,000 pieces of pottery that we excavate every day. Coins, bones, objects, you know, human bones, animal bones, seeds. It's just this massive jigsaw puzzle. Then we have to determine what is from what period. So the yellow is the pre-Israelite period. The uh, purple is the Israelite period, but they continue to use the yellow also. And then the orange is New Testament, what we would call early Roman. And I'll show you the northwestern square again. That is right here, I believe. And then the green is the Byzantine uh, period. Now, we oftentimes, listen, as an archaeologist, I get one bite at the apple. We can't replicate the experiment. So we've got to do it right the first time. Um, when we do, we've got to record this data properly so that then we can interpret it properly. As a believer in Christ, and I'm one of only three dig directors in Israel who actually believes the Bible out of 100 excavations, very sadly. Uh, as an evangelical Christian, if I make a mistake, well, it's because I'm an evangelical. <laughs> but, you know, if someone else makes a mistake, well, everybody messes up. And, you know, that in one sense, we could say that's unfair. But on the other hand, it's made us better. It's made us strive for excellence and to, to be able to then lead the way and to share then what we're learning with others. These two squares are uh, something we're really interested in right now because we've got a large east-west wall. And the Bible says that the tabernacle at Shiloh oriented east-west. Later, Solomon's temple was oriented east-west. And so now for the first time, we've got large east-west walls that are beginning to emerge. It's true that the tabernacle was a tent, but the language in the first chapters of 1 Samuel seemed to indicate that there's a transition from a temporary structure into a more permanent structure uh, at the site. So we've got our eye on this wall, and right next to it, we found some interesting things. In fact, one of those interesting things see the, the extent of that wall. One of those interesting things was this pomegranate. This was just voted one of the top 10 finds in Israel in uh, 2018. And uh, you think, well, why is that a pomegranate? Well, a, a baby pomegranate, while it's on the tree before it comes to maturity, this is what it looks like without the, <laughs> the little hole on the top, of course. 
But uh, when you go back and read the text, you'll see that when the Israelites came into the promised land, there were seven sacred fruits. You're going to have a land of dates and figs and grapes and list off seven fruits. One of them is the pomegranate. There's only one of those seven fruits then that is associated with the very presence of God. It's not the grape. It's not the fig. It's not the, the date. It's the pomegranate. In Shiloh, in the tabernacle, and later in Solomon's temple, pomegranates were there. Ceramic, we're not, I'm not saying that the fruit itself, but artistic depictions of the pomegranate because it represents the abundance of God. It represents fertility and, and hope for the future. I mean, each pomegranate has 613 seeds in it. Did you know that? 600, you can count the number of seeds in a pomegranate, but you can't count the number of pomegranates in a seed. 613. There are also 613 commandments in the Hebrew Bible. And perhaps this is the reason that, that this, is, this is held as sacred. But this is the one fruit that was allowed to be in God's presence. Now go back and read the text. The priest, the high priest, when he went into the presence of God, on the hem of his garment, what did he have? He had a bell and a pomegranate. And a bell and a pomegranate alternating around the hem of the garment. Now, we are beginning to find these. I'm not claiming that this pomegranate hung from the high priest's robe. There's no way that I can prove that. It may very well have hung from something like a, a cult stand, if you will, looking something like this. But we are now beginning to find artifacts and accoutrements that, again, going back to our word verisimilitude, match what you would expect to find when you're excavating a site like this. We also find stone vessels. You'll see some of those on display uh, in the next, next building over. Um, this is that ritual purity culture that was so dominant in the first century. What was Jesus' first miracle? He turned water into pomegranate wine. Good. See, from now on, it's all about the pomegranate. John 2 says that they were stone jars. Did you ever notice that little detail? They weren't clay jars. They were stone jars, and that's that ritual purity culture. This is an example of what we find. That's not clay. That's limestone. It's literally been chiseled out of limestone because it's not susceptible to ritual impurity. Now, I'll assure you, you've never heard a sermon or a teaching on the verse that I'm about to share with you. Leviticus 11, when your pottery becomes impure, says the Lord, you must break it. Ever heard a good sermon on that? As if we don't have enough broken pottery in Israel already. Now Yahweh is commanding us to break our pottery. However, he didn't say anything about stone vessels. And so they begin to interpret this differently in about 100 B.C. Along with several other important changes. Sometimes we're blessed and we find whole vessels about once a week. And this is an example that the University of Northwestern team excavated this last summer. This is an inkwell. It's a first century inkwell. We scraped the inside of it. We're hoping to do testing on the ink to learn more about it. Um, Dr. Sievers and uh, at least one Northwestern student are going to uh, help publish this as well. Now, why do we care about something like an inkwell? Okay, when we have skeptics telling us that Jesus was an illiterate Galilean peasant, then we have to ask ourselves, is that what the text itself says? Not that there's anything wrong with being illiterate or being a peasant, but is that what the text reflects? And the answer is no, it's not. 
The Bible shows us Jesus reading publicly. The Bible shows us Jesus writing. So there's no basis for the claim that he was illiterate or that you had widespread illiteracy in the first century. In fact, in first century homes, very commonly, we find styluses for writing, inkwells for writing. In, if we're to take Josephus at face value, a first century historian, he tells us that there was a partition matching the biblical account that separated the court of the Gentiles so that they could go no further toward the presence of God. Josephus says that there were 24 partitions, signs on this partition, 12 in Latin and 12 in Greek. The partition said, Gentiles who cross this point will be responsible for their own death. You see the levels of sanctity? Gentiles can go this far, women can go this far, men can go this far, men from a certain tribe can go this far, and then the high priest can go this far. A very uh, stratified society. Ephesians 2 says that Jesus came and destroyed the wall of separation. That's the wall that he's talking about. Archaeologically, two of those signs have been recovered, one in Latin and one in Greek. Now, let me ask you this. How are you going to put these peasants to death if they're illiterate? So you've got signs that say if you cross this point, capital punishment, crucifixion. So you mean to tell me they are crucifying people who can't read? They've just passed a line and they don't even know it. So it does not pass that verisimilitude test, does it? We also excavated a beautiful middle bronze juglet this last summer, what we call a milk juglet, and an Iron Age oil lamp, and we have one identical to this on display here, and this is from the time of David. Can you think of a verse, maybe in Psalm 119, where David talks about a lamp or a light? What does he say? Your word is a lamp unto my feet, it's a light unto my path. This is what oil lamps looked like at the time of David. Before David they were different, and after David they were different, but this is what had in mind when he wrote that inspired verse of scripture. And we have our star of the show here. Uh, this guy is the most powerful of all the pharaohs. His name is Tutmosis III. He's part of the 18th Egyptian dynasty, 15th century BC. He conquers all of Canaan in about the year 1483. And you can see his name in the middle if you know how to uh, read this language. You see the cartouche right in the middle of the scarab. That's the name of Tutmosi III. No previous pharaoh ever uses that same iconography. No later pharaoh ever uses that same iconography. So it's absolute dating for us if we can get it from a clean archeological context. And it's pretty cool that it was object 1000 that we excavated at Shiloh, our 1000th object turned out to be really, really cool and important. Now let me tell you what a scarab is. It's in the shape of a beetle because the Egyptians believed that the dung beetle pushed the sun across the sky each day. I mean, the Greeks thought that Apollo hitched up his four horsemen and pulled the sun across the sky. Well, for the uh, Egyptians, it's the dung beetle. And the Latin word scarabus means, means beetle. We found four scarabs this last summer. So I decided that I would name them since they were beetles. And so I named them John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Uh, so uh, I'd like for you to meet John. Uh, this is John, uh, otherwise known as Tutmosis III. 
Now, two of these scarabs were found through wet sifting, a new technology that we have implemented whole scale, where we wash all of the remains before we toss it. Guess what? We've been missing a lot in the past, we being all archaeologists. We've been throwing away a lot of the evidence, not even knowing it. Because when that little thing is covered in dirt, it, it just looks like a little rock, a little dirt clod. But when you wash it under a little bit of pressure, it pops out. And so we're revolutionizing the way that we do archaeology. This is also important because it proves that people were living at Shiloh at the time that the Bible says that they were at Shiloh. This is what our pottery looks like in the pre-Israelite period and in the Israelite period. Some of our flints, of course, we record every object. We have elevations of where it came from. We study this, then write our reports and publish them. And this is how the story then gets told. The second video that I'm going to show you this morning, I said, was just a little bit longer and a little bit more serious. This video is a tribute to our oldest volunteer at Shiloh. We have volunteers ranging from age 13 to 85 this summer. And this is a tribute to Michael Lubini, our dig photographer who will turn 85 this year in, in Israel. Um, I've sometimes asked if I'm someone is too old to volunteer. My response is I prefer older volunteers because they're already accustomed to pain and suffering. So I mean, <laughs> you guys, we have to introduce you to it. They're already accustomed. So this, uh, this last video is called What a Dig Means. A lot of times people say, well, how long have you been digging here in Israel? I said, well, I came here when the Dead Sea was only to reach three kinds of people. The first would be uh, sort of confronting skepticism that's out there, showing, showing people that through our research that the Bible can actually be trusted. The evidence that we've unearthed as the sites that the Associates for Biblical Research has excavated over the last several decades have, I think, given us overwhelming evidence for a synchronism, what I would call a verisimilitude between the archaeological data and the biblical text. It's not guesswork. I mean, archaeology today is not like it was several hundred years ago when uh, scholars from Europe came down here and they haphazardly named this city and that city with shoestring evidence. Today, archaeology is CSI Miami. The Bible gets alive through some uh, I love the Bible too. reliability of scripture. By doing the excavation here, we're able to get an overall uh, concept of life in antiquity, and we're able to connect that then to what the scripture says and see the consistency between the Bible and archaeology. I've always sure. been fascinated with what the Bible actually looked like, just not what it was on the page in a story. So to see how walls look actually and how their pottery looks in real life that's what really drives me just to see that to see the bible come alive the fact that you can come over here and touch the land 
that you read about in the Bible, they make the, the Bible come alive. It helps me to know that it's real. It gives me a connection to people in general, to history, to biblical history. It has changed the way I read the text. It has changed the way I teach the text. The archaeology, what it does, it, it demonstrates and, and for me, it, it proves the, the reliability of the scriptures. When we see the things that are talked about in the Bible and a material culture that matches that, sometimes with great specificity, then I think we can logically conclude that uh, there is a God of the Bible and that that God has a moral claim on our lives. So one might ask, what, why is this work important? Um, there's all kinds of needs that are in the Christian community, people who are sick, people who are going through tragedy and suffering, people who are going through divorce and have children who've walked away from God. Uh, aren't those things more important than doing archaeology? And in a way, those are very interpersonal, but archaeology is important because many people walk away from the faith or never consider the gospel because they believe the Bible is filled with fairy tales or inaccuracies or stories that just aren't true. And that does impact people. And using archaeology as a tool to show that the scriptures can be trusted can be a gateway to someone entertaining, understanding, and receiving the gospel you have to have faith, but over here, a lot of that faith is proven to them. Jewish people living here in Shiloh are very, very happy to see that the ground is being taken away, and whatever was in the past is now entering into the present. There is nothing more exciting to me to see people who have come here from the nations and the truth that this incredible holy earth is hiding uh, about what really happened here in Shiloh. There used to be a cartoon about the Wayback Machine. Well, that's what archaeology in Israel is. It's a Wayback Machine. You can go back there. You can live it and touch it. And it's all about the book that you've been reading and studying, the Holy Bible, God's Word. stand, I'll dismiss us in prayer. Lord, I pray for each person present today that you would fill them with your spirit, give them a sense of purpose and destiny, that there's a need for restored relationships. I pray that you would appropriate grace to restore those. I pray for a rich blessing upon each life here. And if anyone's supposed to go to Shiloh, I pray you'll make a way, provide the resources and open all the doors. And uh, we bless your name together. In Jesus' name, amen.